0: Solar energy, electromagnetic radiation from the sun, measured by the radiant energy it carries and distributes into environments exposed to it, is typically experienced by humans as sunlight. And this sunlight is a primary source of power for essentially everything on the planet, with the exception of life and processes located deep underground or underwater, which often have other energetic sources, like heat from geothermal vents. Beyond those deep earth exceptions, though, Everything from the wind to the water cycle to all life any of us are likely to encounter are fundamentally solar-powered, because that energy, zapped over to us across space in the form of sunlight, stimulates the atmospheric processes and cellular mechanisms that allow us to function and keeps our atmospheric activities moving. This sun-derived energy is naturally distributed and accumulated by physical things, like how rocks and water hold heat, keeping creatures living in rocky and oceanic environments at a relatively stable temperature, even when the air around them cools down at night or seasonally. Likewise, life forms at all scales tend to have abilities, internal or external, that allow them to make use of the fruits of this energetic distribution process, ranging from the ability to soak up the sun and convert it into energy to the ability to eat and digest other creatures that perform such conversion and then in turn convert that energy-packed material into their own energy storage medium for later, so as carbohydrates, fats, and so on. Active use of solar energy, in contrast, is a relatively recent thing. Though arguably the early versions of solar harvesting were just upgraded, more intentional versions of what's already been happening in nature all this time. Early solar-powered structures took the shape of well-placed pools and consciously constructed buildings that would soak up heat from the sun at the appropriate time of day or time of year. And that use then resulted in a pleasant bathing or living experience for those who used said pools or lived in said houses. Solar heat has also long been used to cook food, in some cases by focusing sunlight to create fire, but in others, merely constructing the right vessel or oven was sufficient to capture and focus daytime heat long enough to do a fair bit of cooking, which in turn allowed the humans doing this cooking to access more nutrition and energy than would otherwise be naturally digestible. By the time active solar energy capture technologies capable of converting radiant energy into electrical energy came along then, humanity and most other life on the planet already had a long history of working with energy from the sun. We just captured and applied it in different ways. There are a few primary ways we convert radiant energy from the sun into electrical energy as of mid-2022. The first and most familiar to most people at this point, I think, is the use of solar panels, more properly called direct photovoltaics, which make use of special semiconducting materials that allow for the generation of voltage and current when those materials are exposed to light. So in practice, this means if you put a solar panel in sunlight, and direct sunlight is best, you can generate electricity as a consequence, and that electricity can be used or stored as desired. You can also use what's called concentrated solar power, which exists in a few different primary shapes these days, but often manifests as a tower at the center of a ring of mirrors and lenses that focus solar energy, the sunlight hitting those mirrors at a central collection point on that tower. That focused energy heats that central point up to very high temperatures, and those high temperatures are converted into electricity, usually through the use of a steam turbine. So concentrated solar power is a modern application of several older approaches because all you're really doing is taking a bunch of distributed radiant energy, shoving it all into one focused point so there's more energy in less space, and then allowing that energy to heat water, which turns into steam, and that steam turns a turbine, which generates electricity. Despite its relative humbleness and antiquity as an energy source, solar energy is considered to be vital if we want to avoid the worst consequences of human-amplified climate change. What I'd like to talk about today are a couple of recent reports that, first, suggest we're at a serious tipping point moment when it comes to deciding what the world will look like over the next several decades, and second, indicate why solar power in particular is such an important ingredient in the most promising recipes for avoiding those worst-case outcomes. (laughs) You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from BBC News, and it's entitled, Wind and Solar Reach Milestone As Demand Surges, a new report published by independent energy think tank ember indicates that clean power sources now make up about 38% of the total global supply, and that wind and solar, which are the fastest-growing sources of energy, hit a record 10% of global electricity production in 2021. Which is fairly astonishing when you consider that for a while, solar power was only considered to be a good fit for small, energy-sipping applications, like powering pocket calculators. By 2015, though, solar power sources produced 1% of the world's energy, and that's up to 4% today, the other 6% of that aforementioned 10% coming from wind. That's very rapid growth. And in some countries, like Vietnam, the deployment of solar increased by 300% in just a single year, due in large part to what are called feed-in tariffs, which essentially means the government paid households for generating electricity, which made the upfront investment of solar infrastructure, even at the individual family level, financially appealing. That same report indicates that the global demand for electricity increased by 5% in 2021, which is the equivalent of adding another India to the global power demand numbers. So that's a lot of new demand. But the data also says that 29% of that new demand was met by wind and solar sources alone. So while more people have been wanting more electricity, a huge chunk of our new demand has been met by just these two renewable sources, which is heartening. Less heartening is that there was a 7% rise in overall power sector CO2 emissions, and coal-fired power plant-generated electricity, which is the most polluting kind of electricity you can generate, rose by 9%, which is the fastest rate of growth for that energy type since 1985, as most countries have been trying to phase it out. It's just a really dirty and polluting way to produce energy, and these days mostly utilized only out of tradition or desperation. Part of the shift back to using more coal, though, is related to another trend that's helped boost electricity generation from renewable sources, and that's the increasing prices and uncertainty attached to petroleum and gas, the latter of which has been something like 10 times as expensive around Europe and parts of Asia over the past year or two compared to previous years. So economically, many renewable sources that were a tiny bit more expensive than gas and petroleum are suddenly cheaper. But coal, which only increased in price by about 300% on average, was also cheaper than those other fossil fuel options. And unfortunately, a lot of regions have incentive to use coal to fill gaps in a pinch, because it takes longer to build clean energy infrastructure. And many countries already have coal-fired power plants available, even if they're not always running. We're not always running at full steam these days. Another report released around the same time as the one from Ember was produced by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC, which has been releasing regular reports on climate change mitigation, which generally includes some pretty sobering numbers and predictions, and this most recent report is no different. The folks behind this report opted to take a somewhat optimistic tone in sharing this newest batch of numbers, though. To understand why, let's take a look at some of the bird's-eye-view essentials from that report. The decade from 2010 through 2019 saw the highest level of greenhouse gas emissions in human history, which isn't terribly surprising, given that we've been on a growth trajectory for this kind of thing since the Industrial Revolution, and even before that, arguably, because of all our campfires and metallurgy and such. A bit more surprising, though, is that the rate of emissions growth has slowed, And because of that slowdown and its intersection with some other variables, there's still a chance to salvage our goal of keeping our global average temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is important because the difference between an average global temperature increase of 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is staggering. Basically, some portions of the planet will become uninhabitable for human beings in the latter case, and in the former case, a lot will change, and we'll continue to see the extraordinary levels of previously rare weather events and higher than usual temperature swings throughout the world. But we will be less likely to see holistic, paradigm shifting adjustments that would make life worse for essentially everyone on the planet in countless overt and subtle ways. Said another way, we really, really want to limit this increase to 1.5 degrees. Otherwise, our descendants will live in a much more dangerous and inhospitable world, with a lot less diversity of life of all kinds, a lot fewer options, and a lot more misery and conflict, especially in the relatively short term, the next several generations, during which we will be acclimating to our new, less hospitable climate reality. The Paris Agreement, which is an international treaty adopted in 2015 by 193 UN signatory nations, is meant to serve as a framework through which global civilization can mitigate and ideally prevent the worst impacts of climate change across societal, economic, technological, environmental, and other facets of life. This agreement is considered to be a big deal, but it's also been criticized for not going far enough in almost every way. It's more potent than any previous agreement, but it has no teeth. There are no real consequences, other than reputational ones, for not living up to your declared Paris Agreement goals. And even those reputational hits aren't that big a deal, because a lot of governments are failing to live up to their goals. It's just really easy to set new limits and aspirations for, say, 2030 or 2050, and to then keep kicking the can down the road, assuming future administrations and or generations will take care of the issue, while you continue to putter along as usual. There are a lot of incentives that keep us from making changes of this kind, and the Paris Agreement, with all its ambition and promise, demonstrated that to us pretty clearly. That said, the key vital number of the Paris Agreement is 1.5 degrees Celsius, because once we go above that, things get pretty bad for a significant portion of the human population, not to mention all the non-human life that will be wiped out entirely. We would see issues with food security, ever-increasing droughts, military conflicts fought over ever-scarcer vital resources if we tip above that number. There's a lot not to like about a scenario that goes beyond 1.5. And some of these things will happen under the 1.5 degree capped scenario too, unfortunately. It's estimated that something like 70 to 90% of all coral reefs will die off worldwide at 1.5 degrees. But we needed a goal It needed to be concrete, and it needed to be achievable and realistic. And since we're already up to about 1.1 degrees above the pre-industrial era, the decades leading up to the year 1900, anything short of 1.5 just didn't seem realistic. This new IPCC report reinforces that we can still hit 1.5 then, but also that it will be very, very difficult and uncomfortable and expensive. do so. And in order to make this happen, we'll have to act fast, because the slower we act, the more expensive it will be to make the reductions in emissions we need to make. Those emissions compound the issue once they're emitted, so acting faster means it will be cheaper to get where we need to be, ultimately, though it will also be more painful, because a slower shift would be more comfortable. For all the companies and governments and individuals, that'll have to change their behaviors and business models and policies to make this a reality. Fortunately, we generally know what we need to do in terms of investments and policies. We need to reduce fossil fuel use and then reduce it to zero as quickly as possible. We need to electrify everything, which means shifting from using combustible fuels in cars and gas for heating homes and cooking food, and start using electricity instead. We need improved energy efficiency, which means less waste overall, so things are less energetically expensive to power. And we need to further develop, produce, and deploy alternative fuels like hydrogen, which can be created sustainably without emissions, and cleanly consumed for power as well. And that's important because it will make the transition easier, since hydrogen can often be subbed in for natural gas, and because it will provide an alternative to producing straight-up electricity and then moving that around via power lines and batteries. Once we start creating hydrogen in a sustainable way, it can serve as an energy storage medium, basically. All of which sounds relatively simple, but these are big, ponderous asks that require a hell of a lot of investment and political will to implement. And political will and monetary resources just aren't forthcoming in a lot of cases. In the US, for instance, a lot of politicians have a vested interest in keeping oil and coal companies happy, and across large swaths of Europe, natural gas is used for essentially all heating and manufacturing purposes. There are grand fleets of gasoline powered automobiles scattered around the globe that would need to be either rebuilt to use some other type of fuel or replaced with some kind of electric vehicle to make this work, and making things more efficient is something we generally do anyway as we evolve and iterate our technologies, but convincing enough of the planetary population to either augment or replace their microwaves, air conditioners, refrigerators, heaters, and other appliances and technologies with more efficient versions of the same is a big ask. People just don't have the money for such upgrades, in many cases. And governments, perhaps understandably, are typically hesitant to get involved by offering money or vouchers or hands-on help to refurbish these devices, or to stimulate a wave of replacements big enough to make a dent in the energy used by these sorts of goods. So while we generally know what we need to do, that's kind of part of the problem here. We know what we need to do, and it's a lot and it's expensive, and it's uncomfortable. And in many cases, it means asking voters to sacrifice or spend, which in many cases then means the people in positions of power who can actually do something about these issues from on high, from their positions in government, either don't want to ask these things of their constituents, or they do ask their constituents to do these things, and they get voted out in favor of the politicians who will tell them everything's fine, or that solutions are on the way, but not yet. We don't need to worry about it our kids will deal with that so just keep on puttering along as normal it's all good there is movement within all these spaces fortunately so we're not just collectively sitting on our hands innovations in the world of reuse and recycling for instance especially in the manufacturing and building industries which collectively account for something like a quarter of all emissions are moving slowly forward in part because these are already fairly heavily regulated industries and because it's often monetarily beneficial to make these changes rather than just philosophically. So it's not all short-term sacrifice for theoretical long-term gain. There are some short-term gains as well. Fundamental to the larger effort to electrify everything, though, is making sure there's enough electricity and enough available electricity in each area to power all the stuff that would need to be electrified. One of the benefits of using fuels like natural gas is that it means our energy mix is varied. So if electricity is expensive or hard to come by, some of the entities using a lot of it can shift over to gas. And in areas where heating is vital for survival and comfort, this energy-hungry process can be completely relegated to gas, which is often cheaper, especially for that use case and on that scale. Electrical grids need to be expanded, reinforced, and interconnected to handle this load and to become more versatile and less vulnerable so we can more capably shift electricity to where it's needed and keep it cheap. We also need to be able to make more of it, and that brings us back around to solar power. As I mentioned, for the first time, solar and wind accounted for 10% of the world's total electricity in 2021. And all clean sources, including geothermal and hydro, accounted for about 38% of the world's total electricity generation. Wind turbines are being deployed almost frantically across large flat terrain and just off coasts where floating turbines can capture oceanic winds and then pump that generated electricity back to land for use in nearby communities. And this has proved to be super beneficial to many nations, including the UK, which gets an astonishing amount of their energy from their impressive array of turbines. But other nations are beginning to catch up, including the US, which has recently opened up more oceanic real estate for this very purpose. Solar, though, is considered by many to be the renewable resource with the most general use case potential capable of serving as a sort of renewable energy foundation, or the trunk of a green energy tree. And this is partly because of how simple much of the infrastructure is, how cleanly it can be integrated into all kinds of terrain, and because of just how much energy of this kind is available to us to be tapped. The Earth is continuously hit by about 174 petawatts of solar radiation, Again, that's the stuff that's absorbed by solar panels to produce energy, and that we perceive as sunlight and heat. And that's up in the upper atmosphere. About 30% of that is bounced back into space because of the reflectiveness of the atmosphere. The rest, though, something like 122 petawatts, and a petawatt is one quadrillion watts, gets inside the atmosphere. And it's estimated that in 2021, for the first time, after installing about 183 gigawatts of new solar capacity, in that single year, the entirety of the human species produced just under one terawatt of electricity from solar sources globally. Now a gigawatt is one one one-thousandth of a terawatt, and a terawatt is one one one-thousandth of a petawatt. So we're nearly at one terawatt globally. And it's estimated that we can achieve something like 122 petawatts if we capture all the available energy of this kind that makes it through the atmosphere. And the whole of the human species globally today consumes about 17.7 terawatts equivalent of energy from all sources, including oil, coal, gas, and raw electricity. So we could produce, theoretically at least, several orders of magnitude more electricity than all of humanity needs today for all purposes, from just solar, if we got really into putting panels and other energy-capturing surfaces all over the place. Now it's unlikely we'll reach that level of deployment and efficiency anytime soon, if ever, but there is a chance that some of the technologies we're playing with right now could allow us to get close. There are paints that operate as solar panels, and we're seeing a lot of interesting tiles and windows and thinner, more attractive solar paneling and other materials that do the same. So we could at some point just build solar panel-like functionality into everything we make, which would mean all of our stuff would always be collecting energy from available light, which in turn would power these things, our phones, our cars, our homes, and so on. But all our devices and clothing and sidewalks could also be collecting additional energy beyond what they need to function and then funnel that energy back into the grid So our power capacity could be increased by turning everything into a solar panel. And those panels would be basically invisible because they would be innocuously built into the materials, the bodies, the structure of everything we produce. The cost of contemporary solar power deployment has been decreasing precipitously as well, which makes something like this scenario more thinkable. Not in the short term, maybe, but eventually. And in the meantime, we may start to see more panel-like, contemporary versions of solar panels in more places. Because the panels themselves, and all the stuff required to keep them ticking along, have dropped in price by about 82% since 2010 alone. And that's due to economies of scale, because we produce more of them, faster and more efficiently, but also because of new technologies, new materials used in the panels, and more knowledgeable and efficient deployment and optimization. We're using artificial intelligence to figure out where to put them and how to keep them oriented throughout the day for optimal energy capture. We're integrating them into other infrastructure, like atop buildings and in fields, using them to shade plants that benefit from having that shade for part of the day. We're building them over water infrastructure, like canals and streams, which serves the double-beneficial purpose of preventing evaporation and keeping that water cooler. And we're coming up with clever new ways to clean and maintain solar panel surfaces, which is important. About 70 to 90% of the cost of solar infrastructure is upfront production and deployment, but making them more resilient and functional, even in non-ideal conditions, has borne a lot of fruit as well. Part of why the IPCC report was able to strike an optimistic tone then Is that renewables overall but solar in particular have so much promise there's so much we can do with them even beyond our current civilizational needs and their price and thus their likelihood of actually being used because it's financially viable and beneficial to use them has been moving in the right direction and a lot faster than even the most optimistic estimations have forecast Solar has so consistently defied pricing predictions that it's become kind of a joke that even when analysts look back at how wrong they were in the past, underestimating the price decreases the solar industry would see, and then go on to make more optimistic guesses about where the price will be in five years, they still get it wrong because these analysts just can't keep up with the ever-increasing efficiency of this energy segment the prices go down faster than even optimistic analysis can account for. Further, as mentioned in that report, it's estimated that secondary gains from the deployment of more solar and other renewables could be substantial. As we electrify more, electricity will get cheaper. That will encourage more and faster deployment of electricity using, rather than gas or petroleum using, infrastructure and appliances and vehicles. And that, in turn, will quicken the cascade of changes we need to see soon if we're going to stay below that 1.5 degree average temperature ceiling. This deployment and its associated cost reductions are not just promising for what they represent directly, then, but also because of all the economic and societal changes they portend, as everything connected to energy and our use of it, including our habits and expectations, shift as the reality of ever cheaper, ever more abundant energy from green sources shifts. We are still far from being in a stable, truly positive spot. Climate wise. And no matter what we do at this point, even if we can develop and deploy cheap carbon capture devices on a large scale in the next few years, which is another thing we need to do and soon, a lot of these changes are locked in, and in some cases, have already become somewhat normalized. There is a glimmer of hope, though, and the idea of this report and its tone seems to be ensuring people know that. Because if we feel like we completely lack the capacity to meaningfully change our circumstances and outcomes, there's a good chance pessimism will sap us of the will to make at times uncomfortable and expensive adjustments to our way of life, and that could lead to even worse outcomes in the near and more distant future. book I'd like to recommend today is called The Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail by Ray Dalio. This is a fairly grand scope piece of analytical work. And like any piece of analysis, it's important to remember that it is just analysis from the perspective of one person. And this is a well-known person who is well-regarded for his analysis and his speculation of this kind. But he's also approaching things from a very distinct point of view, which is that of an investor. So a lot of his analysis is tied up in the economic and other quantifiable aspects of what makes the world tick. Now that said, I found it to be quite interesting. I'm always fascinated to see what other people think about what's happening in the world, why things are happening the way that they're happening, and where things might go next, even when, as is almost always the case, those estimations prove to be a little bit or a lot or completely wrong in retrospect. That said, Ray Dalio is an interesting character. He has been doing what he does for something like 50 years now. And so his perspective on this, especially the economic context behind what's happening right now and what might happen next, is especially informed and interesting, as long as you can keep all those aforementioned caveats in mind. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.